As you're taking your seats this morning, uh, children, if you would like to go down to Children's Church, you are free to do so. Children being up to grade five, and since we're in summer, we have kids who are in transition, uh, so you are welcome to be in transition, either stay or go. You can live in limbo for a couple of months, so... Kids, you won't want to miss it because the worship team you'll see is heading down there to be with you today and uh, it's going to be an exciting day. So uh, any kids that want to go down there and join them, it's going to be a fun experience for you today. If you were here last week, you remember that we started a two-part, sort of a two-part mini-series in the context of our mini-series, right? Uh, We've been going through the Countercultural Life series and uh, we are at the end. Uh, We literally will spend this week and next week, and then we'll bring it to a close. That will count about six months of time that we spent working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been using the text in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 uh, to work our way through that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching uh, on how to live, but more than an ethical and a moral perspective on how to live, it's it's been more of uh, how do I capture the heart of Jesus? How do I understand how Jesus lived and then pattern my life to live like he lived? Uh, Not just doing things in a better way, but actually doing things with the heart of God. So at the end of the sermon in chapter 7 now we are in, we looked at uh, two ideas of kind of how Jesus closes his sermon. And he closes with some challenges to the people that were listening. And that is last week we looked at looking at the idea of Beware of false teachers, people that come along and try to mislead you. They're going to, uh, if you'll remember, we talked about that eight-lane highway, right? Jesus' way is the small one-lane country road, right? The narrow way. And then there's the the eight-lane highway of the world. And then there's the false teachers that come along and try to put you on that eight-lane highway and somehow or another make you think that you're heading to that narrow gate. But that eight-lane highway doesn't get you to the narrow gate, the the little country road does. Uh, so follow the, the narrow way. Enter through the narrow gate. We talked a lot about false teachers and what to look for and how to discern all of that last week. And then I said this week we're going to pick up and look at these last few verses uh, in chapter 7, 21 through 27. And the idea is not so much about being misled. That was last week. This week is a, it, it is about self-deception. It is about how sometimes we can mislead ourselves. And so that's the the challenge, that's the shift that we're going to make today. Let me start before I read actually 21 through 27 in in Matthew 7. I'm going to start with this verse. Some of you might be familiar. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians. The apostle Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? And then this interesting phrase, unless, of course, you fail the test. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Now, why would Paul say something like that? Why would Paul tell us to examine ourselves? I think at the heart of it, it comes into the passage that we're going to read today, the end of Matthew chapter 7. 
But before I get there, let me just remind us, this was our main thought from last week, and it continues into this week. Disciples of Christ examine themselves regularly and carefully guard against deception, whether external or internal. Last week was external. This week we're going to talk about the more internal aspect in their pursuit of holiness and righteousness. So that's our main thought that we've been working with for uh, a couple of weeks now. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. And um, we're going to read Matthew 7, 21 through 27. I'll read it in the NLT just because that's the Bible that I brought down. You might have a red or a black Bible or you can look at it on your phones, uh, the Bible app. Uh, we have it for you on the Bible app through the NIV, the New International Version. They're pretty close, but you'll notice a few words might be different. Matthew 7:21 says this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Remember, this is Jesus talking. Verse 24, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And so ends Jesus' teaching and the Sermon on the Mount. Let's keep in mind what Jesus has been doing all the way through this sermon, right? He's been holding himself up as the standard. Whether we recognize it or we don't recognize it, he's been calling us to a higher level of accountability, a higher level of righteousness. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and then we've learned throughout that time that our righteousness is, not, is never even going to be good enough. Your righteousness, Paul says, is as filthy rags, right? I mean, we're never going to quite be able to measure up, so we have to trust and rely on Jesus Christ as the source of the help that we need to live the life that Jesus is calling us to live. And so a question pops out for us as we examine ourselves. It's kind of that first question. Does your life reflect Jesus and shine his love on the world around you? Shining his love. Remember, the people that were following him thought that they knew Jesus. The Pharisees, the teachers, they were the most righteous people of the time. They followed the Torah, the Old Testament, the book of the law, they, they did what they thought was what was required of them. And Jesus came along and said, you have heard that it was said, but, but I tell you this, in essence saying, you can do all of those things, but if I don't have your heart, if you're not living the way that I live, if you're not capturing my heart for the people that you're loving and serving, you haven't figured it out yet. You're missing the whole point. 
Jesus says, my heart is that I have your heart and that your message to the world conveys the same love that my heart has for the world. You can't do that simply by obeying some laws. Just not going to work. You have to conform to the will of the Father. You have to obey His commands. So keep that thought in your mind and, and move over to Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles or your phones or however you want to get there, I'm going to read a little bit of a story that talks about this idea of not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 25, we have a, a story that Jesus is telling about what it's going to look like in the end times, the last days, okay? Uh, it's the parable, of, we might call it the parable of the virgins and the parable of the ten bridesmaids. You've heard it referred to maybe different ways, but uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, let me just read the story to you. It says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. Maybe that sounds a little bit like the wise and the foolish builders, and it should. There's some parallel there. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along some extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep, all ten of them. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps, and then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please, give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. Does that sound familiar? Many who say to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. It's an interesting story that kind of highlights for us what it's going to be like on those final days, in those last times. Self-deception. Thinking that we're ready. Any procrastinators in the group? Any people who kind of put things off a little bit out into the future thinking, I'll get to that. It's going to come. I've got some more time. And you know what? I'll take care of that a little bit later. I've got this to focus on right now. And let me take care of this. And that will, you know, I'll get to that later. I want you to focus on those words, Lord, Lord. Jesus says it twice back in chapter 7. Lord, Lord, and Lord, Lord. Let's, the first one is like this. 
So I'm a pastor. I walk into a room. I walk into a crowded room. I walk into a, a setting where people don't know that I'm a pastor. And people are chattering away and some people are saying things and you know how a variety of situations can go. People say things that are a little colorful here and there. They use some colorful words and all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm being mild. I'm being kind, right? So, so I walk into the room and um, somebody says, hey, Pastor Scott. And they're like, oh, you're a pastor. Right? Ever, ever experienced something like that? You get caught off guard because the pastor walks into the room. And, um, and then they're like, sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. Sorry, I used the wrong words, right? And, and they, they kind of clean up from there, right? Because now they're on display. The pastor's in the room and they have to kind of correct what they say. That's the first use of the word Lord, Lord here. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Those are words of respect. That's what they're saying. It's Jesus. Sorry, Jesus. Like, I knew, like, I, you're the pastor. But, but you know in their heart of hearts, like I know as a pastor in my heart of hearts, like nothing's really going to change after they walk out of the room. Right? They cleaned it up for the minute because they want to be respectful and appropriate. But nothing really changed in their hearts. Right? That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying. Many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, like, it's the pastor. It's Jesus. Like, I respect Jesus. Let me clean that up. And many are going to say that, but they're not all going to enter heaven. They're not all going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Well, what does Jesus say as he goes on? He says, uh, on judgment day, or says, only those who actually do the will of of my Father in heaven will enter. In other words, it's not enough to just say the right words. It's not enough to just pray the sinner's prayer. It's not enough to just profess an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is saying to the people who are following along here. He says, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, the second use of the word Lord, Lord here is not so much the sign of respect. This use of the word Lord, Lord actually is a Greek form. The, the Septuagint is an Old Testament uh, way that they, the Greeks in, translated the Old Testament. And they use the word kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. And, and that is a reference to Jehovah. All right. So this word, Lord, Lord, is now not just a sign of respect, but it's like Jehovah. We know you're God. We believe that you're God. And on Judgment Day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, Jehovah, we know you're God. We... And then they go on and they tell of all their wonderful accomplishments. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar to you? Is there an aspect of your life where you have known who God is and there's an aspect of respect for God, but there's always this question? I've heard it a couple of different times this week in my own family. Not my immediate family, but some of my extended family. And we got together with them for some other reasons this week. And my own extended family, I heard a couple different people say, I really, I struggle with my faith. I struggle with my faith. With, there's, there's nothing wrong with struggling with your faith. A lot of people struggle with their faith, but they never move beyond it. 
They never get to a place where they acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and recognizing the difference that He makes inside of us personally and the challenge that He calls us to live a life like Him. We never quite cross that hurdle. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, it's not enough to just say the words. There is a lifestyle change. We've been through six months together of looking at what a life lived in Jesus Christ really should look like. And if we don't make that change, if we don't begin to capture the heart of Jesus, if we don't begin to allow His love to flow through us, if we're wrestling all the... and we just keep wrestling, we never quite cross that hurdle. We may get to that place on Judgment Day. Because we can go through all of the motions. And I think that that is probably one of the more scary aspects of this particular... It's one of the more sobering, right? Maybe not scary, but sobering aspects to what Jesus is talking about here. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Do you know that God, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God has used non-Christians, even degenerate people, to prophesy in His name? Because God can do whatever He wants to do, right? He uses whatever He needs to use. You can go back and read the story of a prophet named Balaam. Balaam needed his donkey to show him that there was an angel standing in the way. Balaam couldn't even see that, right? But, but God used Balaam to bring a word to some people and pronounce some judgment. But afterwards, Balaam went back to being Balaam, right? He, he was just, he was a prophet, right? God used him, but he wasn't one that you want to pattern your life after. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament. Not a guy you want to pattern your life after too much, right? But Saul, said, he, he prophesied. He got around some other people and they prophesied together. How about Caiaphas in the New Testament? Caiaphas, the one that, that pronounced Jesus to the, to the cross, right? He, he gave his stamp of approval to, to see Jesus go to the cross. Says in the New Testament story of that process that Caiaphas prophesied. Caiaphas. Should he have known better? Should he have known and stood up and said, no, this is the Messiah? He should have. Did he? Because didn't we prophesy in your name? Yeah. But I never knew you. Hmm. Didn't we perform and, and drive out evil spirits? Didn't we perform some exorcisms in your name? Acts 19 has a really interesting story. There were some Jews who were walking around following some of the disciples. They were going from town to town and these Jews were casting out evil spirits. And what they would do is they would use a little incantation, right? The incantation says, we know, uh, we, we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they were kind of having some success until once they encountered a demon that uh, was like, well, I know Jesus... The demon says this. I know Jesus. And I know Paul. But who on earth are you? And he beat them up. Stripped them naked and they went out running. All seven of them. They're called the seven sons of Sceva. Didn't we perform those things in your name? Yes, but I never knew you. 
Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Didn't we do some phenomenal things in your name, Jesus? Didn't we... You know, it says in the last days, I'm going to read for you from Thessalonians. It says in the last days there's going to be all kinds of things that are happening in the world around us. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed by the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived. In other words, God's going to allow us to believe what we want to believe. Do we believe in Jesus Christ? Do we believe He is the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, born to to come and to redeem us from our sinful and evil ways of life? Do we believe that or do we just acknowledge, oh, you're Jesus. Let me just, just clean it up on the outside a little bit. God's going to allow us. That's the choice. That's the freedom of choice. That's the ultimate expression, honestly, of His love for you. Is he gives you the choice. He doesn't force you. He's not going to tell you, you know, love me. Or, you know, like, you have to love me. That's not love. Some of you are married. You know, that's not love. Like, you, you just don't live that way, right? We have the freedom to choose God. But God's going to turn us over and because they refuse to love and accept the truth. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Those are sobering, sobering words. Second Thessalonians 2. And uh, that was 9 through 11 if you want to reference it. So, didn't we perform all these things and drive out demons and... Didn't we prophesy? And didn't we do all these good things? And, and to that I might add, didn't we go to church on Sundays and special holidays? And didn't I take communion when it was offered to me? And didn't I try to serve and help some people? And um, the list goes on and on and on. Things that we think that we are doing to please God. And I can tell you in many ways, He, he is pleased with those things, but... If he doesn't know you, it's not going to make a difference in the end. And I'm sorry to be so sobering. And I'm sorry to be like such a downer. Like, this is Jesus speaking. This isn't me speaking. Like, if it was up to me, I wouldn't be so negative. But it's not up to me. I have to share with you what what the scripture is saying. Truth is truth. Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't want your actions to obey. He says in the Old Testament, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you don't do the will of the Father, all that you do is not an assurance of your salvation. We only have assurance of our salvation when we believe and do the will of the Father. Let me read for you some words from Second Peter in his letter that he wrote, uh, he says this, in view, and this is uh, chapter 1, 
In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. But don't stop there. And moral excellence with knowledge. But don't stop there. And knowledge with self-control. Now we're getting into some lifestyle changes, right? And self-control with patient endurance. And patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection. Here you go. Here's the, here's the cherry on the ice cream. Cherry on top. Brotherly affection with love for everyone. Isn't that at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount? Starting with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Isn't that at the heart of the, it's love, it's embracing people with true love. And if that love is not coursing through your veins, if that love for others and that heart and that compassion, and it will be expressed in a variety of different ways, it's not just this emotional outpouring of love, but it's a, a deep, deep love for people and their salvation and their eternity and all of that, Right? We all express it in different ways, but it's that love, that deep, deep love that needs to be at the end of all that we do morally and ethically and all the service projects and all the ways that we conform to being religious people. Does God have your heart? Does your life reflect and shine his love on the world around you? The things that you need to check in this pursuit Check your words. Don't just say some words. What are you saying? What do they mean? What are they doing inside of your heart? What are your actions? Do your actions reflect your words? Right? Faith without deeds is no faith at all, says James, right? Even James gets in on the, the, the equation here in James chapter 1, and you can look at this in verses like 20 through 22. He talks about his own version of being deceived. It's like a, a person who hears these words, and they look in a mirror. Some of you will remember this. We studied this a long time ago. They look in a mirror, and then when they walk away, they actually forget what they look like. Ever, ever done that? Oh, wait, wait, wait. What, what, I just looked at something. What was that? That's what James says about being deceived. It's like looking in a mirror and then all of a sudden forgetting. Because you don't actually put it into practice. You're not actually living what you say you believe. So then notice Jesus' confession. It's Jesus. I never knew you. I never knew you. Now... We could read that and get really superficial. Like, geez, really, you never knew me? Come on. Like, look, at, I'm here. I'm sitting. I'm, I'm in front of you. I'm, this is me, Jesus. And, and Jesus, well, sure. Like, I know the hair on your head before I knew you before you were born. I know you. Like, I, I know who you are. So we can't read it in the superficial sense of saying, like, he doesn't recognize you. Jesus recognized you. He knows you intimately in that sense. But this word here, if you look in the, the Old Testament prophet, the Amos 3.2, it says, You only have I known among all the families on the earth. You can think of this word known as uh, Cain in the Old Testament, uh, knowing his wife. 
or Joseph being upset that Mary was pregnant because he had not yet known her. There's this sense of intimate union. An intimate connection. It's very, very personal. It's vulnerability. It's getting down to the core of who I am and what I believe and what I trust. It's do I know... Jesus is saying, I never knew you. I never got your heart. I never really was connected to you. Now maybe some of you have a wall that you've put up because of your own pain, your own circumstances, your own idea of of what it means to really be vulnerable and there's fear involved. I understand that. Jesus knows that better than any human person will ever know. And He's inviting you to explore that with Him. And you may need somebody to help you through that. You may need some counseling and some support and whatever that is, whether it's pastoral counseling, professional counseling, whatever it is, but... But somehow or another, we may have to reframe who it is we think we're being vulnerable with. Because he's tender and he loves you and he cares about you, but, but he really, really wants to know you intimately. He wants to have your heart. Professions of faith and speaking words, they're, they're not a litmus test for your salvation. In some ways, that's what the world has made it out to be. Pray the prayer, say the words, and, and you're good. And, and there's an aspect to that that is good, right? There's, that's a starting point. But you can't end there. Because the test of whether or not your heart has truly been changed is whether or not you live into the fullness of what Jesus teaches. It's not just saying the words and then moving on. That's what Jesus is saying. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't be those people. There's a time. There's a time for mercy. And I have the picture in my head of those bridesmaids knocking on the door like, we just went to get some more oil. We're back. Just We're right here. We're knocking on the door. And they're pleading for mercy. They're pleading for mercy. And we want, in our heart of hearts, we want God to open that door, don't we? Like, just grant me some mercy, God. Like, I was right there, and I just had to go get a little bit more oil. I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready, and, and I didn't... And the door stays shut. That's a hard word. Because we think, and we believe... In a God of mercy. And I'm here to declare to you today, He is a God of mercy. But the time for mercy is now, not then. Don't plead for mercy. Don't wait. Don't presume on God's mercy. He is offering you mercy now. And I guarantee you, take these words. When you are standing before Jesus, you are going to know His love in a way that you have never known it before. It will not be judgment in a harsh sense. It is going to be my love for you. And you will recognize how merciful He has been to you your entire life. 
you will recognize and look back on your entire life and see His hand in your life, His hand of love and grace and mercy. You will see it. You will know it. And you will be longing. If you fail to grasp it now, you will be longing and and looking back and saying, why didn't I see it then? Oh, may God open our eyes to see and receive His love and His mercy now. This season we are in, called life, is the season of God's mercy upon our lives. He loves us. Let me tell you a quick story. In San Francisco, there is a tower called Millennium Tower. Anybody familiar with Millennium Tower? It's a 58-story tower in San Francisco. It's filled with condominiums, condominiums ranging from 400,000 to millions and millions of dollars, okay? This condominium uh, was, uh, sits on a thousand supports, has a thousand supports. They are all drilled down 80 feet into, guess what? No, sand. This tower is built on sand. Um, since 2010, the building has sunk 17 inches. It has tilted 14 inches to the north and 6 inches to the west. It's sinking at a rate of 2 inches per year. People cannot sell those condos fast enough or cheap enough. Literally. Now, the building has been theoretically deemed safe by the building code inspectors, but who in their right mind builds on sand in an earthquake fault zone? And the issue is that the sand in and of itself is, is not the worst thing. There are actually other buildings in San Francisco built on sand. It's crazy. I don't understand it myself. They should have gone down, and it says in the article that I read, they should have gone down 200 feet where there is bedrock, and the building right next to them actually did that, hasn't experienced any of the same problems. But the issue is when the earthquake hits, that sand liquefies. And so... It is a disaster waiting to happen. And everybody knows that San Francisco, not everybody, I didn't know this, but everybody out there seems to know that uh, there is a big one coming. There is a big earthquake. It just, it sits on a fault line. And you've seen the earthquakes happening all around the Pacific Rim right now. Like, it's coming. And Millennium Tower is not sitting on the right kind of foundation There's no wisdom in it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like building on sand. The wind and the rain, it comes. Maybe in the case of Millennium Tower, the earthquakes come. And it collapses because it's not on the bedrock. That's at the heart of this particular culmination of Jesus' sermon. We've been through an awful lot of stuff. Next week I'm going to provide a summary. Kind of the main high points and and the the overarching themes to to Jesus' sermon. He's an excellent preacher, as you can imagine. Jesus would be, right? And and there's actually a, a nice flow to it, and we've broken it up over many small little chunks, and sometimes it can feel like there's individual chunks that don't relate to the other chunks, and 
But Jesus put it all together. I'm going to kind of provide that for a summary next week so that we can kind of walk away with a big picture. But each and every one of these sermons, each and every one of these teachings that Jesus provided for us demands a response. What have you done with it? What kind of action have you taken to be somebody who takes these words that Jesus has spoken and puts them into action to show that there is wisdom in your life, that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you and teaching you and and that you are becoming more and more like Him. Go back to Paul's words. Examine your heart. Examine yourselves. All the time examine yourselves. It's not that I want you to walk around being afraid, uh, am I saved, am I not saved? But the reality is, if you have those doubts or those questions, you need to answer them. I am not, I cannot stand before you and say you're okay. If the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your mind even now, you need to wrestle with that before God. He can provide you. It's His Spirit that provides us the assurance of salvation. It's His Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are who we say we are. And if you are questioning that in any way, shape, or form, that's between you and God. You know it's my heart, my pastor's heart. I would love to console you. I really would. And if you don't know me, that you just need to know that about. I would love to say words that make you feel better. But this is between you and God. Because you will stand with Him one day. I won't be there with you in that moment. It will be you and God. And His love is going to be waiting with open arms. Don't be there pleading for mercy. Because He's granting you the opportunity right now. can't convey deeply enough how much Jesus loves you. As our, as our Father in heaven today, how much He wants to be in that relationship with you. But it's not going to be some moral life that gets the ticket. It's not going to be some ethical stand on some political issue. It's not going to be grandstanding for something that you care about. It's not going to be any of that unless that flows from the deeper place of your heart that you are reflecting Jesus and His heart for the world, His care and His concern for the people that surround you, for the people that are hurting and broken. You have something to offer. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have that assurance of faith, you have something to offer that this world is clinging, longing for. Are you sharing that? You may be God's mercy to them in that moment. You may be God's grace to them in that moment. I'd like to read for you a quote and then I'll close. At the heart of self-deception, this isn't the quote yet, but this is me saying, at the heart of self-deception is clinging to what I know and not letting go. At the heart of self-deception is pride My way is good. It's known. I understand it. At the heart of self-deception is 
not facing our fears. Living in the guilt and the shame of our past or our circumstances. And even that can sound a little bit shameful. And I I don't mean it to sound shameful. It's just that we need to face our fears and our hearts and let ourselves be vulnerable enough to let God have it all. You guys know that I've been following Brene Brown. We've been reading her book. This is a quote from her. It says, love is not easy. Love is not hearts and bows. Love is very controversial, really. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for you. In all these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there is not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. And so I thought about, this is her saying, why forgiveness is so hard in our, in our culture. Because there are two effects or emotions that people fear the most, and it's shame and grief. And we've been working through a lot of that in our backyard book club and reading through the book that she's written and dealing with that concept of shame and grief and just our own stories. There's so many things that get in the way of really being vulnerable before Jesus, of really facing our fears, facing those unknown things. But Jesus can't be any more clear. It's not about the words you say. It's not about the things that you do. I need to, Jesus says, I want to know you. So the question for each of us this morning goes back to, does Jesus know you? Do you know Jesus? This is the way Jesus ended his sermon. Not the highest high to end a sermon on, right? That's how Jesus ended it. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and they're going to carve out some space for us to respond to give us all some time to really reflect on that question. Then they're going to lead us in a closing song. and You may respond with a a prayer card. You may respond with a gift, a tithe, an offering. You may respond with sitting in your chair. You may respond with a time at the altar. However you respond this morning, it's between you and God and it's an opportunity to not leave this place the same way you came in this morning. God doesn't want you to live in fear. It's not about fear, but it really is about embracing his love and his mercy. So let's just take some time. I'm going to pray and then the worship team will lead us in a time of reflection. Heavenly Father, as we settle into your loving embrace, we um, are confronted with some very difficult words. These are your words, Lord, and we know that, we believe that this Bible was written 
to reflect your heart, to reflect who you were, and to capture the essence of your character and your nature, which really is love. So Lord, I pray that this morning we would settle into a deeper awareness of your desire to intimately know us. Lord, if we have to correct that, if we have to do something about that today, Lord, I just, I just pray your spirit doesn't leave us alone. Lord, help us not to deny it, but to do whatever it takes to press into you and to know you and to allow you to know us. We love you, Lord. Do your work, in Jesus' name.